I have no time to read any of these. (laughs) Oh, the irony. That hurts. Hey, readers. I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 142. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, I want to share a great comment we got from Megan in response to episode 140 with Cindy Wongbrandt, where we discuss identity and specifically reading identity. In your podcast app, this episode is titled, What is Literary Fiction Anyway? Here's what she says. Hi, Anne. I have been a devoted listener since day one, and I have listened to all, yes, all of the episodes of What Should I Read Next? And while all are wonderful, this one spoke to me like no other. First, so many books you and Cindy discussed would rank on my list of personal favorites, like The Spirit Catches You, The Nightingale, etc. More importantly, however, was your discussion of what is, quote, literary about literary fiction and why it is perceived as more highbrow. I am an honors AP English teacher and have had many, many conversations of this nature with parents, strangers, and yes, sadly, my colleagues, as we discuss books taught in English class. I understand that the Odyssey is important and I personally adore it, but I strongly feel that my job when it comes to reading is to help my students establish a reading identity. What genres, authors, and subjects do they like? Which ones miss the mark? As they enter the world at large, what will speak to them through the rest of their lives? Homer is not going to help them establish that identity, but John Green or Jody Piku or Jason Reynolds, and the list goes on and on, they might. And I strongly feel it is my job to expose them to these choices and hopefully help them decide on their reading identities. Thanks for confirming so many of my beliefs and always recommending wonderfully personalized choices. Megan, thank you so much for that. And I just need to say your students are lucky to have you. Megan left this comment on the podcast site. You can do that yourself for any episode. And that's also where we post the full list of titles we discuss in every episode. To read those comments on this episode for yourself, visit whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 140. We also love reading your feedback that you leave in review form. Those reviews fill our bookish hearts with joy because when you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that helps your fellow book lovers find the show, and we want to spread the book love. Please take two minutes and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks in advance. I appreciate it so much. Readers, we recently had New York Public Library librarians Gwen and Frank on for episode 138, and you might remember that even though they worked within the same library system, their jobs were wildly different. Today, we're exploring another library experience, that of a small-town librarian through the eyes of Sarah Peden, a children's librarian from Humboldt, Tennessee. Sarah is full of stories about the long road to librarianship, strange patron requests, small-town scandals that echo for decades, and so much more delicious library gossip. And if you've ever wondered who wins in Battle Wikipedia versus the librarian, she's weighing in with her opinions. Let's get to it. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks, Anne. I'm excited to be on here today. I'm not sure if you know this, although I imagine that everyone suspects we have a ton of avid library users in our audience. And I think the reason is because, well, first of all, you know, libraries are for book lovers, but also we have so many avid readers in our audience who read 100, 200 books a year. If you were to shell out cash money for 200 titles a year, that's a lot of dollars. Yes. I'm excited to have you on today as someone who is professionally involved in making the library world go round. Can you tell me a little bit about where you are and what you do? 
Yeah. So I am in a small town in West Tennessee, uh, Humboldt. Um, I work at a city library as a children's librarian. So I serve birth through 18 little guys all the way up to about to graduate high school. That encompasses a lot of books and different educational realms there. And it's pretty awesome. (laughs) At what point did you realize this is what you wanted to do with your professional life? I've never not been thinking about libraries. I grew up like two blocks from a library and my family used to walk all the time. And it was just like always on my brain. So when I was in high school, I was homeschooled. So my dad was my career counselor. So he was trying to steer me towards what I might want to be thinking about for college. And I was like, well, I think I would want to be a librarian. That sounds like something I would do because we were always there. Anytime we moved, the first thing we did or second thing we did after like getting into the house was go find the (laughs) library and get a card. Um, Otherwise, I probably would not have been able to survive. (laughs) I started doing my research as a senior and figuring out, okay, so they need a master's degree, which I don't have yet, but I'm working towards that. That was one thing I didn't know. I was like, oh, you actually have to go to school to be a librarian? Cool. And then in college, I just decided to be a liberal arts major and just kind of shaped my own undergraduate degree with children's lit classes and education classes, just things that I really wanted to learn myself and that I knew could be really well applied as a librarian I don't know at what point I decided children's would be my path, but I'm from a big family and I was homeschooled, so it made sense. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people don't know how involved the educational process is. Not everyone who works in a library system has a degree in library science, but for those who do, what does that course of study look like? That can take any undergraduate degree because there's so many varieties of librarians you could have a science degree and then be a, you know, an academic librarian for a research foundation or something like that. So you can take any undergraduate degree and then you know go on, get your MLS or master's in library or information science as it's kind of now being called. So that's four years of undergrad. And then depending on how long it takes you, because most people that are doing their MLS are also working full or part-time just to make it happen. And then another two to three years of grad school. And that looks at like information structure classes. So like how our databases, how the whole network of the card catalog and things like that work down to programming classes. And I mean, it's even a little bit of social work in there because you are working with people of so many backgrounds and different walks of life. So a little bit of everything. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Because a library is about so much more than the books. Like they really occupy an important place in our culture. Mm-hmm. You could probably wax poetic about that. Huh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, sometimes to some people who are like library traditionalists, it hurts to hear people say that like a library is a more of a community center because you're like, no, it's, it's the books. It's about the shiny floors, the nice desks and light streaming through the windows and absolute silence for you to like sit and read when in reality, at least in like my library, and I know a lot of the libraries in my region, we are not quiet at all. Um, because <laughs> yesterday we had 72 kids here eating ice pops, watching firemen do the hose on their fire truck. And like, it was loud. I was like, well, you know, if anybody came to the library today to have some peace and quiet, I'm sorry. Summer reading has started in <laughs> September. So, I mean, we're a community center because especially for lower income communities, story time is preschool for some kids. Some people don't have internet, so they're looking for jobs on our computers. We're just trying to help them get the information they need in the best way possible. 
So is a children's librarian in your city library, how do you spend your time over the course of a week? What does your day-to-day look like? I come in an hour before we actually open. So we have an hour of like planning time. And that looks like cleaning up the messes from the night before, the books that happen to still be on the floor from the kids, and then working on plans for whatever programs I have that day, um, whether it's story time or summer reading programs this month. And then once the doors are open, it's just a constant balancing act of multitasking from you know continuing to work on those programs um, and then jumping up to help somebody at the desk if there's somebody there to troubleshooting computers, <laughs> to helping somebody find what they need to read, printing off coloring sheets. <laughs> it just it just changes. And then outreach programs, going to daycares and going to schools and doing after school programs and just constantly, you know, letting the community know that we're here and we're here for them, encouraging to then come back to me and come get the stuff they need in the books. Do you have a mental log of just really interesting or noteworthy or surprising things people have asked you for help for? I had a call once at Christmas time. Um, Somebody was doing a Sunday school lesson and they asked who Mary's father was. And I was like, "Um, I read, (laughs) I have read the gospels and I've read the genealogies a million times, but I'm not exactly sure. Let me call you back. And I almost had to go call my pastor because I was like, I'm not sure that I can figure this out. But I did. And so that was that was one strange one. And I remember like logging that in my bullet journal because I I'm going to remember this question because, you know, useful piece of trivia. So, but I had to laugh because I was, I was kind of stumped for a second. <laughs> that reminds me of something Neil Gaiman said once, which is something like Google can bring you a hundred thousand answers, but a librarian can bring you back the right one. Yes. I love that quote. So a big part of your job is still in the age of Google finding information. Yes. And I was just teaching a um, research class for homeschoolers and one of the little boys, we were using our, our internet databases that are like tried and true and tested. One of the little boys was like, can I just look this up on Wikipedia? And I was like, anybody can change Wikipedia. Wikipedia could tell you that the sky is green. Would you believe it? You know, and they're like, no, but I was like, that illustrates my point. You know, anybody can say anything on the internet. <laughs> How long have you been working in the library, Sarah? I've been working here currently full time for It'll be four years in August, but I mean, I started as a page at my first library just out of high school and like have been in and out part-time since I was 18. So, so you have some history here. Yeah. <laughs> Has the way people approach finding information changed in that time? I think probably so because I mean, I have that weird millennial gap of, I remember when there was no Google that everybody used to now everybody uses Google. So I feel like I've kind of like seen those things change, the Google culture come up. Although through high school, I mean, being homeschooled, things looked different to me because we we were, you know, traditionalists. We went to the library and did those things. But yeah, I can definitely see that they have changed over the course of me working in libraries. Okay. This is reminding me of a story from a friend of mine who wrote a historical novel that included a period detail that she was 100% sure based on historical research was correct. But if you Googled this question, Google would pop you up the big 16 font text that says the answer is, and it was wrong. And it just continues to make her crazy because she gets hate mail that says, Google says you're wrong. And she's like, no, 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 no. I'm sure Google employs librarians, but Google would be like, that's not our fault. We just pull that out of the top searches. And so somebody out there 
there's been enough misinformation spread that Google's like, oh, this must be the right one. Librarians on the quest for truth. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I want to get you a cape. Sarah, I'm a heavy library user. I'm sure that's Mm -hmm. not a shock to people. And yet Mm -hmm. I feel like just in conversation with favorite people at the circulation desk, I'm constantly finding out about services my library offers that I didn't know about despite having gone there for decades. Yeah. I would love to hear the services that are most utilized at your local library. And then I'd love to hear about the ones that aren't, but let's start with the ones that are heavily used. What do people come to the library for and seek your help for? So I'd say internet access is our top one, which, you know, that's not romantic in the slightest, (laughs) not what people want to hear. So internet access is one for job searching for people that are seeking continuing education, things like that. But then right below that, I mean, really our books really still are some of our top utilized resources and not just in the paper and hardbound copies, we have things like Playaways, which are preloaded audiobooks. So it's like a mini MP3 player, um, comes in an orange case. You've probably seen them at your library. Yes. We were heavy users of those yeah. at a certain stage of life. And especially senior ladies, they love those. They take them home. We pop a little battery in the case for them. So they have something and they're like, oh yeah, I listen to this to go to sleep. And it's so sweet. And I'm like, I'm so glad to see, especially an older generation who might not be as adaptable to new technology. That's one that's all in one and they don't need anything extra to make it work. It's just there and they can listen to their book. And that comes in like audiobook versions. And then it comes with like, you can get a little video player. So, oh, I didn't know that. They come loaded with PBS selections or those great um, scholastic animated picture book stories. So, I've had parents, especially just recently, they're going on vacation, check those out so that their kids can have something to watch and entertain them in the road as they drive to Florida or something. And then they come in tablets, so like preloaded with all learn Spanish apps so that the kids can work on uh, skills at home. And it's, it's really awesome. And I love those. I had no idea that that was now an option. I remember when the playaways were new, but yeah. at least in my library system, this was probably 10 to 13 years ago. They could figure it out. Hit play, hit stop. See you when quiet time's over. <laughs> yes. I would imagine that there are library resources that people have at their disposal that they don't know about that you feel like they need to know about? What are those? I mean, is that is that a real thing? And what comes to mind? The things that are hidden are things that are not like physically in our building. And that would be the databases that, you know, at least in the state of Tennessee, the state library pays for access to all of these wonderful databases that are really expensive for a library to pay for on their own. So we're really grateful to them encyclopedia things. We've got world book on every level from like little bitties to adult reading levels. So wealth of resources on the internet, but if it's not right in front of your face, you don't remember it. It's there. And one of the the databases that I love the most, and I think it's the least amount of love because people forget about it is it's called books and authors. And you can search readalikes, search by like specific elements you want. So if you want a book about female orphans in the 1800s, you can like click those specific links and it will like pull together anything that has those tags on it. So you'll probably get Anne of Green Gables. And I I love that so much. And even I forget about it from time to time. I'm like, what do I want to read? Or I'm trying to like create a um, book club read-alikes list. 
I remember, oh, Books and Authors is there. So I pull that up and I, I can spend hours just going down a click hole of, oh, this book, I like this one. So this one I should read now. It's wonderful. I don't know if other library, other states have the access to that, but I would say look for it. Ask your librarian about it. Ooh, I didn't know about that one. I know quite a few librarians have told me that they rely on Novelist, another database to find- I've heard of that one. Help patrons find yeah. books that they might want to read next. Because to bust another common myth, maybe held by more eight-year-olds than like 38-year-olds, <laughs> you haven't actually read every book in the library, have you? Oh, goodness. No, I wish. It makes me sad every time I work, walk through the shelves, at least in the adult section. I'm like, I have no time to read any of these. <laughs> oh, the irony. <laughs> that hurts. It does. Sarah, databases don't sound particularly sexy. And I would love to hear some examples of how you've really helped patrons fill a hole in their life by accessing these things. And I can think of one in particular that wasn't life-changing for me, but after reading Into Thin Air by John Krakauer, I was convinced that I had read an article in like Self or Shape or Vogue or something when I was in middle school or high school that profiled one of the women whose character, can we say character if she's a real life person, in Into Thin Air. But the magazine was not online at the time, so I couldn't yeah. find anything in just a normal regular person, not library, a search engine, but I d had no idea what to do. So I asked my friendly local library reference desk helper to say like, okay, is this possible? And she's like, oh, every day, here we go. What do you yeah. want to know? And she found it. Yeah. Just pulled it right up, got to read all about it right there. It's like so fulfilling because you feel like you've solved the challenge. And those moments are like what keep us going even when we're like, picking up all the books that a three-year-old pulled off the shelf. <laughs> oh yeah. We were both delighted because we'd solved our Sherlock Holmes mystery. Actually, it was more yeah. like Encyclopedia Brown, but we <laughs> solved it and it felt good. We're a very small community. So it's it's pretty rare on the occasion that somebody's coming in looking for a very specific detail. And I wish I had more opportunities for that. That would make me so happy. But <laughs> Do you help people with genealogy information in the library? I will occasionally. We have um, a city or county historian who comes and uses our resources a lot. And we'll usually refer stuff to him when we don't have the time. But I actually did recently. We get, we'll get email requests from people out of state frequently. Here in Memphis, more than 50 years ago, I'm totally spitballing here. <laughs> there was this adoption scheme and this woman who was saying, I'll take the children that you can't take care of. Yes. Uh, and was selling them. And basically. then Lisa Wingate wrote a book about it. Yeah. Yes. I had a woman email me because her father was one of those children and she was looking, our local paper had done a story on him finding his birth mother. And so she was looking for that article in our, her, our paper. I was able to go and find it. And she was so excited. I was so excited because I was like, this is fascinating talking to somebody who was directly affected by that. That was one of those cool, like super sleuthing Nancy Drew. Like, <laughs> microfilm just makes me so happy because it's so antiquated, but just, you know, you can still use it. <laughs> I use this word with great affection. So you get to channel your inner nerd sometimes. Absolutely. I accept that term. <laughs> <laughs> put on the specs and put the hair up in a bun. And Yes. <laughs> I would love to hear a little bit about what serving children specifically looks like. I know the library was a really important place. To me, when I was a kid, we lived next door to a library for many years and my children spent, I don't know, 92% of their days walking in or out the door of our friendly local public library. It's a really important place to me, but you, you see so much where you are. I don't even know what to ask, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on serving that community. 
so like I had librarians in my life growing up. And I remember one specific instance of being like eight or nine and checking out one of the American Girl Samantha books and having the lady at the desk whose face I cannot picture in my mind anymore, but her saying, oh, I loved this book. And me think, thinking, oh, a grown up really liked this book. And like, she's connecting with me. Like I am a grown up as well. And that's one of those things that like, has definitely shaped how I interact with children. And I think there's a quote in Anne Green Gables about how I think she always felt talked down to when she was like going on her flights of fancy. And I think Miss Allen is the one that speaks to her as if she's an equal, the preacher's wife. And I was, was just rereading that for book club recently. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that, but that's my philosophy of working with children. I always love it when I see little girls or little boys who kind of see the same kindred fire in them towards reading when they come in or seeking a specific thing. And I know immediately what's going to be good for them. They're so like open and accepting and adults sometimes will come in and they want a specific thing. And that's the only thing they want, but kids Mm -hmm. will come in and they are open to so many different possibilities. I love that kids have that ability. So much fun to see them, see their eyes light up when they find something that they're really interested in or just to see them grow over the course of the summer from being really reluctant readers and like only wanting to read Magic Treehouse or Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And the mom's like, please, anything but Diary of a Wimpy Kid. (laughs) To like, I have one little boy who's last summer, he was only Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And as of now, he has read the entire Harry Potter series. Like, I'm so proud of him. And it's just like so exciting to see that, that kind of change happen and that growth happen. I love it. So how did that journey start? Did he say, Sarah, I'm out of books. Help me. <laughs> well, his mom, usually it's the mom who's like, help. He won't listen to anything I say because I'm his mom. Maybe he'll listen to you. And specifically with Harry Potter, it was one of those like forbidden fruit things because his mom was like, I want to wait till he's 11. It'll be more special if he's the same age as Harry and can like walk through it. But he like started sneaking the books. He was like <laughs> nine at the time. And she's like, well, he's reading whatever. (laughs) And so it just like kind of spiraled from there. And his younger sister kind of followed in those steps. I mean, and now he's done with Harry Potter and he's like back and searching again. I think I've got him onto Hatchet now because he he loves outdoorsy things. He's always looking for survivalist books. So he's been reading Hatchet, the Hatchet series and the My Side of the Mountain series. Those are ones that his mom was like, I think he'd really like them. And I was agreeing because we'd like had text conferences over this. <laughs> um, some of my moms have a direct line to me. It's it's okay. <laughs> They'll text me at eight o'clock at night and be like, yeah, I got it. Don't worry. But I, I love that. love that personalized service. To be able to be the person, the, the cool outsider, I'm saying that with air quotes around it, <laughs> <laughs> that um, is able to say, hey, this one might be good. Even when mom's been saying it over and over and you just don't want to listen to mom. And I'm sure that's kind of defeating to some moms, but we'll make it happen one way or another. And that kid is going to read if he's coming to my library. Well, that's a great point, though, how it is important for kids to have adults in their lives who aren't their parents, who they can talk to about important things like what they should read next. Yeah. Now, I I get this may be hard to articulate, but (laughs) when a child comes to you and says, help me. Or when the mom comes and says, we need something else to read besides Captain Underpants. Where do you go from there? How do you know what books to put in their hands? So I have like unofficial like survey of questions I ask them. And usually if they're looking or they've been stuck on a certain book and I'll ask them like, what did you like about that? 
for like wimpy kid, I'm like, did you like that was funny? Did you like that it was in school? So like taking that library of Congress information that you find on the copyright page that has like, these are the subject headings. Cause I mean, I always read those as a kid cause I was a nerd uh, and knowing like, okay, this book has these elements to them. And you liked this because it was set in middle school. Why don't you try like James Patterson's I funny series? Cause it's a similar vein. It's funny journal notebook kind of feel kind of illustrations. So taking like the elements that like make up the book that they are stuck on and kind of like trying to pull them out, remix them, maybe throw in a new element to like take them down another path. And I found that to be pretty successful uh, most of the time. Is that something that is taught or that you stumbled upon? It might be unofficially taught. I'm in the process of like applying for grad school. So I haven't, I haven't gotten to take any specific library classes yet, but it's one of those things that came innately to me as I'm like trying to like work with these kids. So yeah, I'll, I'll be interested in seeing if anybody teaches that. And if they don't, I'm going to become a professor and teach it myself. <laughs> I'll sign up for that class. It sounds like a delight. Sarah, are there any books that you find yourself recommending all the time to your young patrons? The little girls, especially that I see like myself in, I have like a set of books. I'm just like, oh, you need to read this because I need to share the love. So like the Penderwick series, which my nine-year-old sister is devouring. I think she's read them five times already. (laughs) I like try to get that into the hands of any other little nine-year-old girl because I'm like, these are about sisters and they have fun playing outdoors and they've got animals. You would really like that. And they're so wholesome and they've got like that modern classic feel to them. But then also Shannon Hale has a wealth of amazing books ranging from early readers to adult readers. But her recent graphic novel, Real Friends, I'm getting an arc for that. And I like was crying at my desk because that so encapsulated my own life of like imaginative play and like relationship to friends and sisters. I try to get that into the hands of any little girl I can find because whether you know it or not, you need to see yourself in the pages of your book and be able to know that you're not alone. You have people out there that understand you, adults understand you. And that's one of the ones like the top on my list for that category there. What about young male readers? Diary for Wimpy Kid really cannot go wrong. I mean, I even with the parents are like, oh, I don't want to read that. If they haven't, I'm like, you know, give it a shot. It's it is good. It's funny, especially the one where they go on a road trip. If you've ever been on a road trip in a minivan with your family, it is true to life. <laughs> it's very true to life. My eight-year-old hasn't read that, and we have a summer road trip in our future. So I'm making oh, oh, oh. notes. <laughs> Because I find little boys like things that are funny and that are also tied to reality. They have a harder time with fantasy. There's some that like really latch on to fantasy, but I found they like something that's like true life and funny. Any of those uh, school journal type ones, things like Magic Treehouse, because you cannot go wrong with Magic Treehouse or Hank the Cowdog, because he's hysterical. And like, I, I know adults who enjoy Hank the Cowdog. Um, <laughs> And then even like branching out further, like I really like Roller, like the Warrior series um, that's been around since my brother was starting to get into reading. Oh, even the, uh, as I mentioned before, Hatchet and My Side of the Mountain, those classic like survivalist little boys like to imagine themselves in those circumstances out in the woods, roughing it kind of thing. Do adults ever seek out your help in what they might enjoy reading? Yes. Sometimes I'll be at the front desk and you know, somebody asked me the other day about a James Patterson book, whether or not it was part of a series. And like, I, I have the resources to look them up. 
but most of the time I will just refer them to my director because as I say, I have not read as many grown-up books as I would have liked to have read. <laughs> so it's a lot harder for me to recommend and help with adult literature. <laughs> I was wondering just how that might be different talking to kids or talking to adults about books or if it was. But it sounds like personally you draw really, really heavily on your own readerly experience. Yeah, because I've, I've read so widely in the children's realm. It's just easy to have a natural flow to conversation and be able to like have one idea spark another and give them suggestions based on those. I feel more comfortable recommending something when I know I can put a stamp of approval on it. It's probably just like hubris there. Not every librarian has read everything. It would be way worse nightmare to have somebody come back and say, you recommended this and I hated it. I'm just so afraid of that moment, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm probably sure you've probably run into in the past. Well, I am thinking of, I think it's in that Jim Trelease book, the read aloud handbook. Where he's telling a story where a school librarian is new to the school and she's come in and she's going to get these like fourth graders or whatever fired Mm -hmm. up about reading. She creates a box and she labels it good books and she puts a bunch of books in the box. Mm -hmm. And one kid comes back and said, you said this was a good book and this was not a good book. (laughs) And so she pulled out a box and she labeled it bad books. And (laughs) she let the kid put it in the bad book box where two of his friends said, what? What are you thinking? But the point was they got really fired up and talking about reading and what you enjoy and how you can have conversations about it that are really interesting and make you think about yourself and books in different ways. So all of which is to say, if that ever happens, it might not be the end of the world. It might be a story that could go in the read aloud handbook. (laughs) I'll keep that in mind. I might make it feel better. Sarah, when you're reading on your own time, what do you enjoy reading? Everything. (laughs) (laughs) I'm one of those stuck adults that is still reading young adult, which there's so many think pieces on that subject alone. How how do you feel about that? I love it because young adult is not a genre. It's a uh, marketing section. There's so many librarian scholarly opinions on that, but like young adult often encapsulates a specific transitional time of life. So like every John Green book ever is like somebody who is going through something. Being 27 and like living with roommates, I still like relate to those kind of stories. So reading books about high schoolers going off to college, I still enjoy that. I'm not ashamed of that. (laughs) (laughs) And also the fantasy in The Young Adult too. Plenty of good fantasy out there. Although I can get a little burned out on the dystopian side of things. But then the classics as well, because I will always come back to Anne of Green Gables and Little Women and they're solids. They're my wheelhouse. How many times do you think you've read these? Uh, Well, I got my first set of Anne of Green Gables when I was 10. A dozen for the first book and then, you know, half of that for the successive ones. And that might be a low estimate. (laughs) I love it. Or I love to hear when a book captures someone so much that they tatter the pages, you know? Yeah. Yeah, What kind of condition is that set in? (laughs) Well, I just applied a very nice little piece of washi tape to the border of my Anne of Green Gables, the first book set, because the cover was lifting off. And I was like, I have to preserve this. And I don't want to just like put packing tape on it because that just seems so callous. So I had this washi tape that was kind of die cut with like a leaf pattern and it fits so nicely. And it looks like a little patchwork crazy quilt now and it feeds the soul of the book. And so I think it's taken on a new life where I just got a little bit of patching. So almost 20 years later, it's hanging in there. It is. Sarah, this has been a delight today. Absolutely. Could you leave us with one tip that you wish 
everyone knew when they walked through the library doors. Don't be afraid to talk to your librarian. Oh, that's a good one. I was as a kid. Of course, I was pretty self-sufficient and could find pretty much anything myself. But there's nothing we love more than helping and answering questions. Hopefully your librarians don't look too busy to help you, but even if they do, feel free to interrupt them. They will either refer you on to somebody if they are actually busy or be able to stop and help you. I wasn't sure what you'd say, but that is perfect. (laughs) Thank you so much for talking books with me today and talking libraries. Yeah, loved it. Hey readers, I hope you love my chat with Sarah as much as I did. If you have a story about a memorable children's librarian or favorite library moment, I would love to hear it and you know what to do. Share it in the comment section at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 142. That's 142. That's also where you'll find the full list of books we discussed today. Whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 142. Next week, I'm talking to Patience Randall about getting book recommendations in the olden days before Instagram, thrilling dystopian fiction, book-to-movie adaptations, and lots more. Here's a sneak peek. A book is a little bit more personal because when you're reading it, it's just a solo experience. And when you're watching a movie, you're watching with a whole bunch of different people. It's just exposed to the entire world in a way that a book isn't. The film feels a little more final to me. Whereas my reading experience, I feel like you can revise in your head. Change the ending if you don't like the way (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait to share that with you on Tuesday. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at What Should I Read Next and at Ann Bogle. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>